Well, welcome to Santa Cruz Baptist Church. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 36. And the title of this sermon is Joyful, Humble Christology. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, was also, John also was baptizing at Aneon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. In today's text, John shows us the fourth consecutive way in his book, which Jesus either fulfills or surpasses all Jewish religion or expectation. In the book of John, Jesus has already turned water to wine, turning empty jars of purification into joyous life. He's cleansed to the temple, claiming himself as the only way of mediation between God and man. He's fulfilled prophecy as the one who brings regeneration through water and spirit, as well as being the ultimate one who was lifted up to bring life from death. All of that's happened leading up to this chapter, John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 shows us that Jesus is better than John the Baptist and any religious rite of purification that the Jews then understood. And so I want us to look at this text under three different headings. Number one, humility. Number two, Christology. And number three, eternity. Humility, Christology, and eternity. I want us to understand that when Christ is properly understood 
it should lead to joyful humility. And that there are two distinct eternal destinations based on one's Christology. So let's jump back into the text. Point one, humility. Following along in your Bibles, we'll start in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Aneon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, not a main point in the text, but it is fascinating that John goes out of his way to tell us that they were baptizing in Anon, because water was plentiful there. Because water was plentiful there. While I could make an argument from the Greek word itself, baptizo, that it means to plunge or dip or immerse, this little phrase does seem to suggest that normal baptism requires more than just a bowl. Water was plentiful there. Because this isn't the main point of the text, I'll leave it alone and move on. So, John the Baptist and Jesus are both baptizing. From what we can see, both of their baptisms carry the same value or mean the same thing from the moment that John the Baptist understands and proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that John had already baptized a couple of Jesus' disciples at this point. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, presumably. And we never see them get re-baptized by Jesus. Even Jesus himself was baptized by John. Jesus' baptism... And John's baptism both symbolize the same thing. Now look at verse 25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. What appears to be happening here is not a debate between the merits or distinctions of John's and Jesus' baptism, but of Jewish rites of purification in John's baptism. And this is kind of a strange verse, isn't it? This discussion arises, and we don't know anything about it. In fact, it's not even mentioned again. And yet, I want to suggest that this question of purification gets answered loud and clear later in the text. So remember this, kind of file it away in your mind, and we'll come back to it later. So, this Discussion starts, and amidst the debate, John's disciples seem to say, well, while we're discussing baptism, we've got another baptismal issue that we want to bring up with you, John. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, so they're referring to Jesus here, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Isn't this amazing and pretty typical of human nature? John the Baptist's whole ministry has been about what? Pointing people to Jesus. 
All over chapter 1, John the Baptist's mission has been consistent. He's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. I'm not the Christ. I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. Behold the Lamb of God. Look at him. That's what he's been doing all along. Follow him. And yet, here, there was still a particular tribalism going on. These disciples of John seem to be upset because their group isn't having as much as success. So easy for, for us today to read this and see the ridiculousness of it, right? And yet, it's hard for us to see that in our own hearts. I've heard Mark Dever say this about a hundred times. He regularly asks pastors that if you spent years praying for revival and for conversion in your city, would you still be happy if it happened in the church across town from you? I want to be a church that can say yes to that with all integrity and honesty. That's why we regularly pray for other churches who are preaching the gospel. Yes, there might be doctrinal and certainly philosophical differences between a number of other churches in Santa Cruz, which we don't want to imitate. But for the ones who are faithfully teaching the gospel and pointing people to Jesus, we're overjoyed because Christ is being preached. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then look what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Think about how wild this is. In our text, in John 3, it isn't people going to some other church in town, which all have flaws, by the way. It's people leaving John to go to Jesus himself. And they're still bummed about it. Look at John's response. I want us to see in, in the next several verses two key truths. That John's able to handle this. Why? Because he knows who he is. And second, most importantly, he knows who Jesus is. This makes all the difference in the world. Verses 27 and 28, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So going a bit backwards, in verse 28, exactly like John did in chapter 1, he says, guys, I'm not the Christ. He's saying, you guys clearly remember me saying that down by the river. John knows clearly who he is. He's not the Christ. Just for the sake of, uh, of seeing the contrast here, imagine with me for a moment if John hadn't been able to see that clearly. 
Instead of humbly pointing people to Christ, he may have tried to take the place of Christ. Remember the subtle temptation of Satan in the garden in Genesis 3. Come on, Eve. You can be like God. You can be the authority. You can call your own shots. The opposite of humility in its most extreme form is trying to become God or putting yourself in God's place. The oldest trick of Satan in the book. John the Baptist doesn't fall for it. He knows who he is. And it's beautiful. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I want us to understand that John the Baptist's humility has everything to do with his correct understanding of God's sovereignty and a robust Christology. Look back at verse 27 again. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. See this. John the Baptist is taking his theology of God's sovereignty and he's applying it to a specific situation. He's saying, look guys, God knows what he's doing here. No one, not one of those people who are going to Jesus would be there without God moving them. He's at peace with what God's doing. He's happy with who God has given him. And he's elated for those who are being baptized by Jesus. God is in control of all of this. So we have humble confidence and we move forward in obedience. Just a a few passages throughout Scripture that reiterate this truth. In response to the unbelief in a particular city, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. God's in control of that. You see that trust and confidence that God is in control, even of who comprehends the truth. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And look at what Jesus says to him in return. Matthew 16, verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the book of Acts, we see Lydia's conversion to Christianity. And look at what the text says, Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And here it is. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see both sides of it there. God is opening hearts. And Paul is still faithful to speak the gospel. When we understand this truth, it fosters humility and cuts down pride. John the Baptist's satisfaction wasn't tainted by people leaving him and following Jesus. Because he knew that this was God's plan. And that God was orchestrating it perfectly. Point two 
Christology. We're going to read verse 27 one more time. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This word given is huge and it's intentional. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. This is on the lips of Jesus himself. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Raise it up on the last day. These people in John chapter 3, our text, were given to Jesus. And John didn't despise it. He celebrated it. Moving on, more Christology. John the Baptist not only understood God's sovereignty, but he understood Jesus' role as the bridegroom. Look at verse 29. John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Again, I'm wanting us to see that John's Christology, or what he believed about Jesus, created his joyful humility. The more he understood Jesus, the more humble joy came out of him. As with the Lamb of God phrase, John isn't just making up these analogies. He knows his Old Testament, and he's seeing, rightly, Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So uh, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4 through 5, says this. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20, says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down safely. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. All over the Old Testament, God is repetitively, through the prophets, he's told his people 
that he will take them out of slavery and spiritual adultery and make them his bride. Look at what John the Baptist is saying here. He's saying the people of God, the ones who follow Jesus, they're the bride. And the ones, the the one who has them, Jesus, he's the bridegroom. Now, consider this metaphor a little deeper. Imagine being at a wedding. A bride, a groom, and a best man. Imagine beautiful music playing. Flowers everywhere. Families packed into the church to see this joyous occasion. And then, the doors in the back of the church bust open. The bride is walked down the aisle to meet her groom. How bizarre would it be for the best man to be standing up there on the stage with his arms folded, just scowling? Because the focus wasn't on him. We've all probably seen that happen with a child ring bear before. But that would be ludicrous for an adult best man to do the same thing, right? That's what John's saying. Look, I know who I am. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man. The bride is finally being taken out of slavery and given to the bridegroom. The rice is being thrown. Sparklers are being lit. And I'm standing in the background overjoyed. Also, Notice that that the friend of the bridegroom hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Why is that significant? Well, John chapter 1 tells us that John the Baptist is what? A voice crying out in the wilderness. Why is he excited here in John chapter 3? Because this is a better voice than his. John chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. It says, To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. This voice throughout the book of John is unbelievable. I don't have time to be fully exhaustive here, but here's just a quick sampling. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John chapter 11, verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, meaning Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. 
His voice brings dead to life. John 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I used to be in a rock band, and I loved playing and singing regularly. Throughout high school and part of college, I actually got to tour a little bit with these guys. We had some pretty good gigs here and there, but I distinctly remember one night going to this concert to watch another band play. This band was was so much better than us, it wasn't even funny. And I remember standing there that night with just a huge beaming smile on my face because of how gifted God had made these guys. Their voice was better than ours. It was truly humbling, but amazing. To this day, they're my favorite band. John, John the Baptist heard a voice that was so much better than his. And he was overjoyed to point people to him and to step aside. That's humble Christology right there. And any Christology that doesn't make you humble isn't Christology at all. Now, I want us to remember that all of this discussion broke out over a Jewish question about what? Purification. Was that just a throwaway line that John, the author of this book, used as filler to just kind of move the story along? Or is it significant? As always, I want to plainly tell you that there are no throwaway lines in this book. Not in the book of John and not in the entire Bible. Each word and each sentence and each paragraph is there for a reason. This one's no different. There's a question over purification here. Jews are starting to wonder. We we have purification rites, but, but John and Jesus seem to be doing something different. Their baptism has a different meaning altogether than ours. What's up with that? I believe John is answering this question with his bridegroom metaphor. And here's how. Surprise, surprise. More Christology. Through revelation from God, John understood what John the Evangelist and later Paul understood. What did they understand? Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the bride, the wife of who? The lamb. What do we know that the lamb does, according to John the Baptist himself? Behold, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The bridegroom is the lamb. The lamb is the bridegroom. The lamb bridegroom takes the church, the people of God, as his wife. And 
he purifies her. Paul says almost the same thing using different words in Ephesians that we just studied, doesn't he? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's purification language. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What John the Baptist is saying is empty ritual can never purify, but a bridegroom can. And I'm elated to see people following him. This joy of mine is now complete. Now, if you remember where we started, I said I wanted us to see this text under three banners. Humility, Christology, and third, eternity. I want us to close by taking a look at verses 35 and 36. Point three, eternity. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whether these are still the words of John the Baptist or John the Evangelist, the author of this book's comments, the meaning is still the same. What's being said is, this is serious business. Eternity hangs in the balance here. And there are only two possible destinations. There's one road that leads to eternal life. And there's one road that leads to the wrath of God. This is the only time in the entire book of John that the word wrath is used. That typically means that we should pay close attention. The one who follows the bridegroom or believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. While the fullness of eternal life is yet to come, trusting in Jesus affects the type of life you have right here on earth. Not health and wealth, but true quality of life, where you have joyful humility, where you trust in God, where you have genuine hope and peace. That's one side. On the other, the one who does not obey, and by inference, believe in the Son, will not see life, John says, and will in contrast remain under the just wrath of God. John wants us to feel the weight of this. This wine-producing, temple-cleansing, new-birth-offering bridegroom calls for our obedience and belief. He died on the cross in our place for our purification. And what John wants us to see is that we can respond to that in one of two ways. Repentance and faith or rebellion. There's not a third option. Eternal roads diverge based upon our belief in Jesus. 
humble, joy-inducing Christology. John is such a great model for us here, isn't he? Pointing people away from ourselves and pointing people to the only one who can truly give life everlasting. Hear the voice of the bridegroom, friends. You won't regret it. Let's pray.